If you're new to our church, we've been reading Scripture together through the use of a book edited together to tell the Bible in chronological order. It's about 95% Scripture. The only parts in it that are not the Bible are some narrative transitions where the people who put these readings in this order explain to you things that you need to know and especially key turns in God's unfolding story. This week, we've been reading from the section of the Bible called 1 Kings. Did you do your reading? If you've been on this journey with us? Maybe your experience was like the experience of one of my sons. We read it on, on Saturday night together as a, as a family. It takes us about 20 minutes, I think, to read through it. And at the end of this week's reading, I closed the book and he said, Wait, that's it? I said, yeah, that's it. He goes, man, that was, that was dark. Because it just went straight down and it never got any better. Did you have that experience this week? It's just a downward spiral in the life of Israel. Where have we been in Scripture? We started, of course, in Genesis. In Genesis, we're told of a God so magnificent that he is simply uncreated. He simply is there. The Bible starts with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No explanation, no apology. It just speaks of him as the very origin of existence. And God begins speaking, and the world that you and I know and love and enjoy and explore is formed by the sheer power of his word. And for a brief time, all is well in the world that God had made. The first marriage appears and a man and a woman are in utter, complete peace and harmony. They are completely relaxed in one another's presence. I'm not sure that state has endured in any marriage for very long ever since. In Genesis chapter 3, sin interjects itself in the world. And one of my Bible college professors said, and it took me years to understand what he meant, he said, Boys, if you understand what the Bible says about sin, everything else will fall into place. And at the time, I thought sin was a strange place to start understanding the rest of Scripture. I think now, after pastoring and being a husband and being a father and being a friend and feeling how my heart, as the hymn said, is prone to wander, I get it now. Sin is fundamental. It's wrecked everything that you know. It's wrecked you. You haven't had a perfect day in your entire life and this side of eternity in the full salvation that Jesus alone can bring, you never will. It's wrecked. It's like we're looking in a shattered mirror and we see glimpses of our reflection, but we can't see ourselves perfectly and we never will until we see ourselves fully in the face of God when we're with him. That's Genesis chapter 3. It's early in the story. Murder appears. Hatred, dissension, wicked idolatry. The nations are born and they all go after their own gods. But in Genesis chapter 12, the story makes a major turn. God reaches down into the life of a moon-worshipping man, a man who came from a moon-worshipping tribe in modern-day Iraq. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great family. And through you, every family, every tribe, clan, every people group on earth is going to be blessed. Abram had a hard time believing him. So did his wife, Sarah. But a miraculous child was born in their old age. 
And from that man and his humble beginnings and his faith, a nation was born, the nation of Israel. And for a brief time, they walked along with God, but they turned their back on him. And we read in the book of the Judges, something that resembles our culture at its worst. The book of Judges says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and every person did what was right in his own eyes. And it was as anarchic and wild and destructive as you could imagine. But God in his grace reached into their story again and gave them the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, a man named Samuel who guided them faithfully in God's word. And Samuel, though it broke his heart, also gave them the king they had chosen and a king they deserved, a man named Saul. Saul was a half-hearted king who walked away from God, but God remained faithful still and gave them a king so famous and so legendary that he is known even to people who have never opened the Bible, a man named David. And one of the Psalms summarizes his life by saying that David guided Israel with the integrity of his heart and the skill of his hands. He's the right kind of king, and he leads them into a time of tremendous prosperity. He gave the throne to his son, Solomon. That's where we were last week. And I say Solomon, and his name is associated, even for people who don't open the Bible, the name of Solomon is synonymous with wisdom. In his wisdom, he gave us three books of the Hebrew Scriptures. He amasses wealth and he amasses power, but in his old age, he becomes self-indulgent. And in his old age, the wisest man on earth thinks that he knows better. Do you ever think you know better? Married guys, do you ever think you know better? Every conflict I've ever had has been the nexus of the problem I'm having with whoever it is, is this. We both think we know better. Parenting, friendship, work, it all stems Eyes get wide, nostrils flare, eyebrows raise, because I think I know better than you. And you have two innately selfish people headed straight at each other, each thinking they know best. And you've got, well, you've got life on earth. That's, what, that's where we are. <laughs> Solomon, in his old age, grew indulgent in disobedience to, in disobedience to God, amassed a great army, amassed great wealth, and worst of all, he amassed a great number of wives who represented not only a pleasure for him, but political alliances. He famously had, do you remember? 700 wives. 300 concubines. I mean, you'd need a database just to not get in trouble on Valentine's Day. This is, uh, <laughs> this is really beyond the pale. Some people are wondering, I can't find one person to marry, and this guy cops a thousand? I mean, it's unbelievable. But it was a disaster. In his old age, the Bible explicitly says his wives drew his heart after their gods. And that will tell you not only how destructive sin is, but how crazy sin makes you. You see, in the ancient world, when your army suffered a defeat... You would then have the custom in the ancient world of rendering honor to the God who had defeated you. Solomon had, every, had peace every day of his life because his God had led him to build a temple in Jerusalem. And for the first time in their lives, Israel is firing on all cylinders and they are a living witness to the whole world. 
God is drawing the nations to them and Solomon famously prays over the temple when a foreigner comes here and hears of your great name and calls out to you, do what he asks so that every nation will know how great you are. That's where they are until, ironically, this is how crazy sin makes you, Solomon gives his heart to lesser gods. And his heart is divided, and the wisest man on earth can be seen helping in the construction of altars to gods who receive children as living sacrifices. And then you come to 1 Kings, and you begin to get the idea that as crazy as, as, crazy and foolish as Solomon became in his old age, that was actually the last high point in Israel's history. From this point forward, there will be no great men known by their wisdom. A civil war is looming. The kingdom really will be torn in two. And perhaps as you've read that, you sympathize with my son and you've asked yourself, what's going on here? Well, let me tell you, God is still writing the upper story. The Bible and your life function on two levels. God, the author of history who weaves it all together like the master craftsman who has a definite sense and purpose for history. It's not random. It's directed under his loving, faithful, wise, holy care. History is headed somewhere, and so is your life. The upper story is being written, but the lower story, our lives, the lives of Israel, get very dark and sad and confusing. And if I could just be transparent with you, I'm feeling a little anxious about it all because I agree with my son. As I read this, as familiar as these stories are, I had to ask myself again the first thing anybody who's reading the Bible and those of us who are teaching the Bible should ask when we come to God's Word. Maybe you asked yourself, why is this story here? Have you ever wondered that when you read the Bible? I mean, there's just this short, bloody, violent episode, and then it's over. You know, what in the world? Why did they put that in there? Why does this carnage go on? Here's some, if I could, before we actually tackle the text, let me give you some Bible reading tips for the rest of your walk with Jesus. First of all, remember, the story is there on purpose. It may appear random, but it's not. Good authors don't waste words. One of my favorites is a British guy named P.G. Woodhouse, who's a humorist, a humorist, It's some critic has noted, it's almost impossible to be unhappy when you're reading P.G. Woodhouse. I've tried and it doesn't particularly work. He just lightens my mood. And he has this, he tells these goofy, silly, funny stories. That's why I like him. But in looking into P.G. Woodhouse's writing style, I discovered this. He had the custom as he was writing his novels or a short story, he would put the the typewritten pages around his office and only when he thought a page was perfect would he put it at a certain level. And he would work page by page by page with maniacal discipline and he wouldn't publish until all the sheets were lined up on the same level. That's a human being. Carefully choosing words, carefully editing, leaving things out and putting things in so that his purpose is achieved, God is a much better author. So if you're reading a story and you don't know why it's there, start with this idea. It's there on purpose. Secondly, remember, it can never mean what it never meant. And here's what I mean by that. 
Every document written by someone else has a purpose in mind. The author had an idea he was trying to communicate. So let's say that you discover a love letter and you've never met the people. You just found this in your lawn and you thought these stinking kids have trashed my lawn again and you pick this thing up. And it's Billy who's declaring his undying love and asking somebody named Susie to prom. You don't know who those people are. Would it be reasonable for you to theorize that perhaps Billy and Susie are actually bank robbers and prom is actually code for the Bank of America on Beach Boulevard? And these details of the date that he is inviting her on are actually coded instructions to knock that bank over on next Saturday and make a break for Vegas? Would that seem a reasonable way for you to interpret a love letter when Billy asked Susie to the prom? What do you think? Did I lose you? It became like an oil painting in here all of a sudden instead of a church congregation. I think most people would understand that's an unreasonable approach to take to that little letter. If you dug a little bit and looked into the history of who Billy and Susie are, you asked around, you found out how that ended up on your lawn, you find out that Billy, bless his heart, is a sophomore at Marina High School. And Susie is the captain of the cheerleaders and a senior. And Billy, in his wild imagination, thinks if he asks her to prom with all these lavish details of how elaborate it's going to be, and there's going to be a YouTube video, it's going to go viral, and they're going to be famous, he thinks he can persuade her to go to prom with him. It would take a little research into the history for you to know what it means. It's the same with the Bible. That's a silly example, but it's the same with the Bible. It was written on purpose, and it can never mean what it never meant. In other words, it was written by a specific person in a specific time to teach and to remind God's people, Israel, in their day of certain things. And you have to start there, or you'll miss the meaning, which means this. You have to start with the first readers. The first readers come first. When I'm reading the Hebrew scriptures, I have to read them as best I can. I have to put myself in their day. And if the spiral is going straight down and there doesn't seem to be any hope and it's a charade, it's a sad parade of charlatans leading Israel and this divided kingdom, I have to ask myself first, what did the first people who read this history, what would they have gained from it? One of my professors in seminary who was an avid surfer said, it's a little bit like surfing. You've got to get your back foot planted first. If the back foot isn't solid, you're not going to be able able to surf. It's the same in our day. We're about a thousand years before Jesus. We have to put our foot in the dust of the Old Testament before we can step forward and figure out why God left this in his word for us. Otherwise, if you'll indulge me for one more minute, and this isn't getting too geeky for you, God's word, God as an author, meant to be taken seriously and meant to be understood. And it's not just literary analysis. God who wrote it has also given you, as a follower of Jesus, his Holy Spirit to open the book up to you and to shine light on it so that you'll be the disciple he wants you to be. If you'll humbly come to him and read carefully and thoughtfully and say, God, why is this here? What does this mean to me? You'll be well on your way to understanding his purpose for your life from this section of scripture. In other words, you have to draw out with his help what the text means. If you'll indulge one more technical term, you want to do exegesis. 
which literally means to draw the meaning out of the text, to figure out what the passage means, rather than eisegesis, which means bringing your own meaning and dumping it into the Bible. Now, that might sound a little technical to you, but I promise you, you've experienced it. Have you ever been in church service, hopefully not here, but somewhere, or listening to a guy on TV, and you're, he's doing his thing, and you're sitting there thinking, that's not what that passage is talking about. He's making that up. Have you ever had that experience? That's eisegesis. He had a message And he found a passage and twisted it and contoured it and cut it so that he could get to say what he wanted to say. That's not, that doesn't honor the author of the book. Now, let me just tell you how I'm feeling this morning. On the way in, I met a dear friend and he said, this better be good because it was really tough to get here this morning. (laughs) And I told him, well, candidly, you're in bad shape because this is a really dark passage and his head just dropped. And so... I, maybe as never before, I'm feeling the weight of this passage and the darkness of it. Because after all this time, with all they've been through, having been given in David a man after God's own heart, and having been given in Solomon the wisest man on earth, Israel finds itself in a disastrous position. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Here's why that happened. 1 Kings 11 says the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, that he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Remember this. This is a note of grace. This is the first faint ray of hope that's going to blaze like a sun later. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. What's this passage telling us? Sin comes at a terrible price. Sin that wrecked the universe, it will ruin everything. My pastor, the guy who used to teach from this pulpit, used to say that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you intend to stay, and it'll cost you more than you intend to pay. It's a great three lines to remember the effect of sin. The wisest man on earth, who the historical record tells us never turned around, lived his last days and closed his eyes in death, knowing that his son would see the kingdom torn away from him, and from a a kingdom of 12 nations would have only two. The tribe of Judah, which was promised to him, and the small, tiny, almost insignificant tribe of Benjamin, who quickly went over to them. Sin costs so much. If we start with the first readers, as we read 1 Kings, once Solomon dies, what we read is an almost unbroken string of failure, apostasy, and men thinking that they know better. There were two men in the story this week, and perhaps you were confused by their names. Were you? 
I heard in a murmur of assent out there. You've got Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and his, his rebel king who had served Solomon. His name was Jeroboam. I don't know if there are two names that are more fun to say in the Old Testament. But it is unfortunate, at least to our ears, that they ruled at the same time because it's hard to keep them straight. Somebody asked me, how do you keep them straight? Here's what I came up with. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, R.S. Does that help? Okay, it was worth a shot. Um, Not everything I try works. I apologize. Solomon knew that the kingdom would end with him. So the foolishness that we read next and the editor, the author is going to tell you this is the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's judgment because disobedience to God comes at a terrible price. This will go on for centuries. As Israel read their history, they didn't read of great times. In fact, the northern kingdom of Israel will never again have a godly king. They will live on for generations going from bad to worse And not one of them will walk with God. Not one of them will be reminiscent of King David. Not one of them will ever come close to the wisdom of Solomon and his glory. It's just a spiral straight down. And the lesson written after page after dark page is this. Disobedience to God comes at a terrible price. And that's an easy thing to nod intellectual and theological assent to in church. But listen to it for your good. Disobedience to God, thinking that you know better, choosing your own way because this one time it won't matter. That kind of foolishness will lead you into disaster. It will cost you more dearly than you thought it would. What did it cost them? Well, let's read how the trouble started. First Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam, that's the son of Solomon, remember? Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. This is a good day. David's grandson will now be on the throne. All of Israel is gathered. And as soon as Jeroboam, that's the rebel who once served Solomon, but has been raised as an adversary against him. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. What do they mean? Well, they mean that Solomon made his money the real old-fashioned way, massive taxation and forced labor. They want a tax break. They're tired of their sons and daughters being pressed into mandatory service. They're tired of their money being confiscated for the king's coffers. And they said, listen, your dad killed us. Lighten our load and we'll be yours. Rehoboam started well. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. In modern terms, that's his entourage. 
These are the boys from the neighborhood. These are the kids he grew up with. They're on the payroll. He's had good counsel from old men who remember Solomon in his glory days and remember his wisdom before he lost his mind. They've given him good advice, but he consults the entourage. And there's a lesson there. It's not the main point of the story. But listen to your elders, young people, more than you listen to your entourage. It's impossible for you to grow wiser if you only consult people who have only been where you've been. The young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, How's this for bravado? My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said, Come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. Here's the point of the story. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king some of the saddest words in Israel's history. What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And he's going to send his taskmaster to them. And Israel's going to come out and stone him. And Rehoboam is going to gather his army, 180,000 strong, and he's going to march toward these rebels to bring the nation to full-blown military war. But God intervenes in his mercy and says, don't fight against your brothers. And that day, at least, there is no fighting. But the kingdom is effectively divided. Now, part of our trouble in the 21st century, about 3,000 years after this happened, is we read this as something that happened long ago and far from our time. What the Bible wants you to see is the terrible price that ordinary people paid for simple disobedience to God. What sorts of things did they suffer from? Well, there was, there was civil war. When Israel says, we don't know David... We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. What is David to us? They are turning their backs on their nation's greatest hero. One day, people had spontaneously been singing about David. Saul killed thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Remember, David is the shepherd boy who alone trusted God enough to face the pagan giant Goliath. Now they're saying, don't need him. Nothing to do with him. Let's all go home. There's civil war. So Jeroboam reads a rebel, leads a rebellion, and he's going to rule over Israel, the ten tribes in the north. Rehoboam is going to remain with two little tribes in the south. And the worst part of the book, gross idolatry permeates both of these new kingdoms. Let me tell you just how bad it got. 
Jeroboam in the north did this. The king took counsel. It says in 1 Kings 12, 28, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And if you've been reading from Genesis to this point, you've got to ask yourself, have they learned nothing? They're digging in the earth for gold and putting gold in the fire to purify it and then bringing it out and working it with tools and making it with their own hands and putting it one in the north and one in the south to say, this is the God who saved us. And the people will flock there because bad leaders mean bad times. And some of you who went to Israel with us a few years ago, you can go and it's certified by the by the government of Israel. Those altars still remain. You can go to those places and walk the paths where God's people prostituted themselves after false gods. It's a dark, heavy place. One member of our group, in fact, felt it deeply and felt this darkness of that place that remains all these thousands of years later. Civil war, but not just civic unrest, but absolute departure from God. That's in the north. Here's what Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was doing. First Kings 14, now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. My constant tip to you has been when you're reading narratives, slow down. Why did the author stop and remind you that Jerusalem was the place where God had chosen to put his name? Because he wants the reader then and now to understand the magnitude and the horror of what he's going to say next. God, purely out of his grace, because he loved the nations, had chosen a city to place his name there and to make them a beacon of love and compassion and justice and national unity and peace toward their neighbors And for a short time, it was happening. For a short time, the lower story of Israel aligned with the upper story of God's will for them. And for a short time, they were a beacon to the nations. But in the very place that God had chosen for his name, this happened. The king's mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Judah, that's the tribe, that's the kingdom, Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For as they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim, in other words, idols, on every high hill and under every green tree, and there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. There's an ugly phrase there, male cult prostitute. It's part of the darkness that my son was referring to. What does that mean? That means that a a man who is a sacred prostitute waits in those high places under those trees. And for money given in worship to a false god, sexual relations occur and the idea is what anthropologists call sympathetic magic, that that ungodly pagan sexual relationship will stimulate the fertility of the earth and their crops will be blessed. 
In other words, the nation who has the creator of the universe speaking to them, making the universe and speaking it into being and choosing them from among the nations of the earth for his own glory and to be his own witness. They're having sex up in the hills to get the things that they think they need to get through life. That's how gross the idolatry of Israel became. And why is this here? As a warning to the reader that if you walk away from the God who made you, all you'll end up doing is worshiping a God of your own creation. And he will be a cruel God who never satisfies you. And in the American prison of disobedience, as one of my professors called it, we set up different kinds of idols. And we're not going up to the hills to have sympathetic magic ritual sex, but we're worshiping at places like significance and success. We're worshiping individualism and a self-styled religion that we pour even into our faith to make that our, our path with Jesus as his disciples suits our preferences. And that individualism, that search, that unquenchable, that unquenchable lust for money and success and prestige, and if you're a man in particular, power and respect, those masters will call out to you every day of your life, and they are no substitute for the God who made you. That's why these warnings are here. When you walk away from God, sin gives you a terrible cost. There is senseless loss and death all through this story. First, a mere civil servant, a taskmaster, is killed, stoned by the nation. Later, Jeroboam has a son get sick. And in his divided heart, he has enough sense to inquire after one of the prophets of God. He says to his wife, go disguise yourself and ask the prophet, ask the man who hears from God what's going to happen to this son. He immediately and miraculously recognizes her and he tells her a terrible sentence. Do you remember what he said? As soon as you cross the threshold of your, whole, of your house, the son will die. And here's how, bar, here's how dark it got. The Bible says that that son died and was spared the destruction, the burning down, quite literally, the utter destruction of the house of Jeroboam because it says in that child who died, God found the only good thing in the whole family. In other words, it got so bad that this boy's death was a mercy. That's what sin does. And you're thinking like my poor friend, boy, I'm really glad I came to church today. I'm just so uplifted. I'm ready to charge. I'm ready to charge hell with a squirt gun after all this. What's happening here? Well, both leaders are evil. Worship is corrupted. Their witness has been ruined. And the question is, why is all this here? Well, disobedience to God comes at a terrible price. But if you keep reading the story, the message of the Bible is that God's steadfast purpose and his unending grace can save us yet. The marvel that this story is written down and that it mattered is not that the, the nation suffered because of their abandonment of God in this way, but that there was a nation at all. God hated idolatry and warned them about it repeatedly and for centuries they disobeyed him. 
Why then, 3,000 years, is it printed together between leather covers for people worldwide in virtually every known language on earth to read this story? Remember, we're reading the ancient world. If it got this bad and God's judgment against the sin of his people was this severe, the real question is, not only why is this story here, but why is this story told at all? Why weren't they they exterminated like so many of the idolatrous nations that fought against them and drew them into this kind of idolatry? And the answer, cover to cover, is that God has a steadfast purpose and his grace is matchless. His purpose for Israel, his purpose for his people, his saving mission is going to overcome all this cover it at his own expense and make them eventually into the people that he wants them to be because he is determined to save not only them, but us. The first little ray of sunshine in this dark story was in 1 Kings chapter chapter 11. I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of who? David. God's saying, you've walked so far away from me, I'm breaking the kingdom up. I'm putting it into it. And they would never be reunited. Eventually, Israel would be scattered. And to this day, they're referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. Only two tribes and small ones among that, Judah and the tiny tribe of Benjamin, only they would remain. Why? For the sake of David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And you keep reading the story. You keep reading through the Bible and you understand that this, these Hebrew scriptures in this section are a dark night preparing you for the dawn of Jesus. This is what it says in the Gospel of Luke. An angel appears to another ordinary person. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Would you read the last two verses with me? Speaking of Jesus, the Bible says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Why is this here a thousand years later? Because, listen, here's the point. God keeps every one of his promises. Sin will cost you more than you think. It will leave you filled with regret. But it's not about your ability. It's about God's steadfast purpose and his grace. On the other side of an empty cross and an empty tomb, we read Paul writing to ancient people, ancient to us, who had just become Christians, who were likewise idolatrous, saying things like this to us. I am confident of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We read in, second, we read in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that in Christ, every single one of God's promises is yes. So you may think that you've gone too far, but God's grace can reach you there. You may be looking over the difference between you, what you thought your life would be and counting the cost of how much it is 
taken from you to walk away from God. Listen, the fact that you're here and with a Bible open in the presence of God who wrote these stories down, not only for your warning, but to give you hope, tells you that his grace invites you back. That he loves you so dearly that your sin and mine and my foolishness and yours did not deter God from his purpose to save and to redeem and to make you his child, to put you into his family, to make you royalty because you belong to him, the king and the creator of the universe. And there's people who walk around, Christians who walk around every day with a heavy burden of legalism, thinking, I've sinned again, have I gone too far? Look at the steadfast purpose and the matchless, fathomless, boundless, bottomless grace of God. God enduring all these things to keep every one of his promises to put a king on the throne who would never fail us, who would never walk away from God, who would never have his heart turned by anything on earth. His name in Jesus and he is your sure foundation. So what are we doing here at this church? We've said that we're here together to make wholehearted disciples of Jesus who hear his word and see in this book that he is the unifying theme, he is the point, and he is the end of the story. That's why Jesus said to men in his day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, but you don't want to come to me that you may have life. My take from that is come to Jesus. There is no light. There is no hope. These stories are dark on purpose to give you the end of the story of what life looks like and what it creates in the world when people walk away from God. But you can come to him. The same God who wrote the book also deals with human hearts. And he is loving and patient and gracious toward me and toward you. And he invites you today to fall in step with his upper story and to trust him with all of your heart. He will not fail you. He will not leave a promise unkept. He will faithfully fulfill his purpose for you. My invitation to you is to come along with the rest of us and follow Jesus because yes, sin takes a terrible toll and charges a terrible price, but his purpose and his grace, they are sufficient for you. Can we pray together? Can I invite you to make it personal this morning? It's not really about Israel's history. This day, it's, it's about your story. Maybe you dragged yourself to church because you had a rough weekend. And you dragged yourself in because you knew you should. You thought it'd be good for you. You wanted to cleanse your conscience, perhaps the steadfast purpose and the great grace of God. That's your hope. These stories are not an invitation to do better. They're an invitation to trust Him. They're an invitation to turn away from the foolishness that I know better and that you know better and to trust Him, the author of the upper story. There's no satisfaction. There's no hope. There's no peace. There's no salvation aside from Him. That's why he kept his promise. That's why he gave his son. If you'll turn away from whatever you've been chasing instead of Jesus, he'll save you. There's hundreds of people in this church family, and all of our stories boil down to that simple truth. 
We were chasing other things. We were beguiled. We were enthralled. We were excited about other things. But God, in a hundred different ways, as different as we are, brought us to an end to ourselves and called us back. And we found Jesus, and he alone has saved us. And he hasn't solved every problem on earth yet, but that's not the point. We're headed home to him. We'll be safe at home with him someday. In the meantime, we have his grace, his strength, his hope, his peace to continue trusting the author of the upper story. He wants to be your savior too. My invitation to you is to turn to him in prayer right now. He's real and he's listening and say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Help me to walk with you as best I know how. I want you to forgive me and save me and I want to walk with you. I want you to call the shots. I want you to write the story. And he will. Father, as we conclude our worship service, would you speak to those who are tired in their faithfulness and their following after you, Lord? They're weary. And they have a hard time seeing where you are in their story this morning. Thank you, God, that you can take care of everyone at the same time as if we were the only person in the room. Encourage those, Lord, who are growing weary. Call those who are far from you back to you. I pray that you would save people today. And help us see, Lord, the idolatry of choosing and following anyone but you for the folly it is. And to hear the voice of Jesus instead and trust him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.